On Monday, May 25th, in Minneapolis, George Floyd, a 46-year-old Black man, cried out for help as a police officer used his knee on Floyd's neck to pin him, unarmed and handcuffed, to the ground until he died. Floyd's death sparked protests across the country as people demonstrate and demand justice in calling for an end to police brutality and the indiscriminate killing of black and brown bodies. But George Floyd's death at the hands of police is just the tip of the iceberg. One more death added to the cry of so many asking, do black lives really matter? Consider how many other black lives have been lost to police violence and deaths because of racial profiling in just the past few years. Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Al-Sharae Ford, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others. Why does the death of a black man or woman and the atrocious circumstances and the ways that they have died, often at the very hands of our civil authorities who are supposed to be protecting us, why is our nation not enraged? Why do white people become enraged at the deaths of other white people, but more often than not, remain silent when our black brothers and sisters are killed. I'm Mae Cannon, and this is Hashtag Activism. When I wrote the chapter that addresses police brutality and racial violence in my book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, I'd hoped to tell the stories of so many lives that were lost and that sparked the Black Lives Matter movement that began in 2013. My editors informed me that there was not enough room in the book for all of the stories to be told. I wish that this episode could call attention to the individual stories and lives of so many Black men, women, and children who have died simply because of the color of their skin in the past few weeks, months, and years. Trayvon Martin was killed because he was wearing a hoodie, coming back from a 7-Eleven with a drink and some Skittles. 12-year-old Tamir Rice was killed by Cleveland police because he was playing with a toy gun. Breonna Taylor, who just this year was killed in her very own home in Louisville, Kentucky. She was an emergency medical technician and a Black woman. In a case of mistaken identity, Taylor's murder took place when the suspect in question was already in custody. The list of unjust deaths goes on and on and on. And I continually hear leaders in the African-American community saying, how long, how long can such injustice continue to run rampant? And how long can Christians and whites in the church remain silent? Perhaps you thought that the lynchings of black bodies was a 20th century phenomenon that faded into the night of a new millennium. Such is not the case. Consider the death of Ahmad Arbery. The insider tells his story this way. Arbery, a 25-year-old black man, set out for a jog in Brunswick, Georgia, one afternoon in late February, just this year. He never made it home. Gregory McMichael, 64, and his son Travis, 34, both of whom are white, say they mistook Arbery for a burglary suspect. So they grabbed two guns, hopped in their pickup, and pursued him. Arbery was shot during an altercation with the pair and died of his wounds. He was buried six days later, but the men who killed him roamed free for more than two months. 
This incident was thrust into the national spotlight in early May when a video filmed by a witness showing the gruesome footage of Arbery's final moments was uploaded to social media and shared widely. It has since led to the arrest of the McMichaels on felony murder and aggravated assault charges, been assigned to a fourth district attorney, and prompted widespread anger and calls for justice. Talking with us today about Ahmed Arbery's death and the devaluation of Black bodies is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Senior Pastor of Trinity United Methodist Church in Chicago. A native of Cleveland, Ohio, Dr. Moss's credentials are too substantive to share in detail here, but here's a couple of highlights. He's a graduate of Morehouse College, has a Master's of Divinity from Yale Divinity School, a Doctorate of Ministry from Chicago Theological Seminary. In 2016, he received the NAACP Image Award for his work, and he was recently named one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English-speaking world by Baylor University's George Truett Theological Seminary. But when I asked him what he wanted me to tell you and what he wanted me to share about his history and his biography, he told me a moving story about his parents. They met during the civil rights movement. They've led a profound legacy and were married by Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Moss continues this legacy in his practice and preaching of Black theology that unapologetically calls attention to the problems of mass incarceration, environmental justice, and economic inequality. On Sunday, May 17th, Reverend Dr. Moss gave a profound sermon called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, a requiem for Ahmad Arbery. Here's a short clip from that message. 5,000 steps, 2.2 miles. A man just shy of his 26th birthday stepped out into the sun and ran for the final time upon this earth. 5,000 steps, 2.2 miles. He encountered two men who tested positive for Confederate COVID-1619. The disease is often asymptomatic and spreads through human contact, rhetoric, ignorance, and family relationship. Ahmad Arbery, a man of potential, was attacked and killed by men infected with America's most common and potent viral agent. This virus alters the eyesight of the attacker, weaponizing the body, giving the illusion of blackness as a threat, making melanin appear as a weapon and any movement as potential danger. It took 10 weeks for an arrest to be made due to the potency of this viral agent. It was necessary for a videotape to be released and pressure from prophetic voices to force the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to relieve the local Brunswick, Georgia police of their duty in this matter. Another life taken, another public lynching, another news story, another act of recorded black death. It is disturbing our nation has become comfortable with weekly broadcasts of black bodies falling to the ground. It has become an unsolicited primetime series that we all hope and pray will be canceled from the collective consciousness of America's civic memory. 5,000 steps, 2.2 miles. The death of Ahmaud Arbery is not an anomaly, but a historical pattern of behavior that binds every American to an unexamined history of our nation. I was grateful to have the opportunity to talk with Reverend Dr. Moss a few days after this sermon, prior to the death of George Floyd, prior to the current unrest calling for racial justice, 
Little did he know how prophetic his words would become. It was broad daylight, middle of the day, that this crime uh, took place. And it took roughly 75 days for the men who murdered Amal to be brought to justice because both DAs in uh, Brunswick had connections uh, with the people who pulled the trigger. Both were, were connected to the police force in, in Brunswick. And it should be noted uh, that you know people are talking about the death of Brother Maude, but uh, we should also note that Brunswick has a history of activity in terms of being completely blind to what is just and right. A gentleman by the name of Vernon Jordan uh, got his start in the law in Brunswick, interning and working with another lawyer. I believe it's uh, Hollinsworth. Hollinsworth. I'm trying to remember his name. It's escaping me. But Brunswick, Georgia was considered to be one of the most racist areas in Georgia where you could not get a fair trial. And Vernon Jordan witnessed that firsthand as a young man fresh out of law school of this area of Georgia that uh, refused to recognize uh, that people of color had the same rights and operated under the same constitution as everyone else in the state. So in the 50s when uh, Vernon Jordan finished law school and uh, started his internship and found himself in Brunswick, Georgia, uh, the southeastern portion of the state, uh, where the NAACP was outlawed in the area. Mm -hmm. That people could not join the NAACP uh, right. except under the threat of death. Wow. So fast forward 50 plus years, you know, from the time of the civil rights movement to today, when you talk about that history of black men and black women not being able to receive a fair trial or even equality under the law or the threat even upon death of joining the NAACP. Um, I think for most listeners, they would say, you know, that was 50 years ago. Today's a different day. Um, talk to us about that reality. I mean, obviously the case and, you know, the killing of Ahmad Arbery tells us that things haven't changed. I think one of the things that we have to understand is that this is not an anomaly. The weaponization of, of Black people's skin is part of the DNA of, of America. Uh, after 1865, what we know as emancipation, and from 1865 to 1877, the period of Reconstruction, we had something that happened in American history that was unique, painful, and tragic, was the criminalization of, of Black bodies. The assumption that every Black person is up to no good. And Southern laws were structured around this idea, where two or three Black people gathered, you had to have papers uh, to, to ensure that you were not up to no good. If you did not have papers, if you did not have a note from your employer, if you did not uh, have some type of document that said you were allowed to go from your home to the store, you would immediately uh, be taken to the jail and most cases convicted and then your labor sold to a company. The greatest 
evangelist for this was somebody by the name of D.W. Griffith, who produced the film uh, The Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation said uh, that black people are criminals. The Klan is the hero of America to keep black people in, in line. And you had all these people, white people in blackface, who were uh, playing uh, characters. They showed uh, the Congress and the Senate and these black men who had been elected as destroying democracy. So once the images, even though they were white people in blackface, the images hit the South and across the nation, it became ingrained in the DNA of our consciousness uh, that a person of color is up to no good. And we even to this day will make the argument uh, that black people are more prone, have a proclivity to crime. It's a myth. But we have tried to turn it into a truth, but it is nothing but a socially constructed idea that literally kills people. And Ahmaud Arbery was a victim of racialized terror and the insidious, sinful myth of race that persists in our country. I think that is what is so critical for all Americans, but particularly white Americans to understand is that, as you articulated, this is not just an anomaly, but that it's based on a historic and systematic codification of racist laws based on white supremacy, and that that continue to be manifested today. You mentioned 75 days transpired from yeah. Ahmed Arbery's murder. To when you know this, um, to when there was an indictment, or to when what what was the story in that regard? Like, so, why did it take so long? What was what was the <laughs> delay, and and then what provoked you know finally for this to you know come to the attention of so many? From from my understanding, when the Brunswick, Georgia police investigated the case, they passed it over to the DA. Uh, the DA had to recuse himself. They passed it over to another DA. That DA had to recuse, uh, recuse herself. Um, both of them had connections uh, with uh, the person who pulled the trigger. Uh, but beyond that, they did not necessarily immediately see that there was a crime because Georgia uh, has this self-defense law, uh, citizen's arrest. If you witness a crime. Now, the details of that law, from my, I'm, not a, I'm not a legal scholar, but from my understanding, the details of that law is you have to witness a crime, you have to be in immediate danger, um, that there's all of these bullet points around this that the two people who chased down on that uh, did not in any way, shape, or form uh, check off. Uh, and so it was the Georgia Bureau of Investigation that had to take the case away from the local authorities. And the only reason that that happened is because it was recorded. Now it was recorded not because the person recording thought these two men chasing Ahmed down, uh, they were doing something wrong. That recording was released by a defense attorney who thought mm. that it would exonerate uh, these men because, of course, black people are always up to no good. The weaponization of, of black skin, of black bodies, uh, the, the way in which we even communicate about it. I, I said in the message that I talked about it that the, one of the dangers is, is for black parents that, you know, for my own daughter when she was younger, 
that the weaponization of black skin will add years to a black girl in the eyes of certain people. So even though she's 10, they will see her as 20 and she will be treated differently and sexualized and also the adultification of small children. Or the fact that skin ends up in the mind and in the consciousness of someone who accepts this ideology, the black person becomes taller, bigger, and stronger than every other human being on the planet when you encounter them, i.e. Michael Brown, the way in which the police officer communicated. Uh, I shared in, in another interview of, of my experience of getting onto an elevator at, at Barnard uh, College and someone literally screaming uh, when they saw me. Um, and they were embarrassed afterwards. Um, but that, that is not unusual for, I'm 6'3", um, and about 200 pounds. And it's not unusual that I learned early on to be very aware of, of my height and the way that I move through a room. And, uh, when, uh, there are different types of people who are present. Uh, because I was taught uh, by my mother uh, that I have to be very careful uh, because I was athletic uh, in terms of how I move and how people will see me in spaces. And that is a tragic consequence of this insidious, tragic, sinful, and evil social construction we know as racialized thinking. Reverend Dr. Moss, talk to us about that a little bit. You mentioned your mother and the way she raised you. I have some dear friends who have um, children that are, you know, even under 10 and not even yet teenagers, but the fear of raising Black boys in America today. This murder of Ahmed Arbery seems to be the exclamation mark at the end of the sentence about the legitimacy of that fear for Black mothers. Can you talk to us about that reality? Certainly. It is for every parent uh, who's raising a uh, Black boy and a Black girl, uh, but especially, I, I think, uh, leaning into uh, a Black boy, you have to have a conversation with your child that people will not see you as uh, a simple, immature, frolicking teenager outside having fun that there are going to be moments when people will see you and will not see a child, but will see an adult, and then they will attach to that uh, uh, destructive actions that are in their imagination. It's not anything that you have done, but in their imagination. And in order to be safe, there are certain ways that you are going to have to engage in the world. There are certain ways you're going to have to communicate. And even if you do all of that, even if you do all of that, the racialized imagination will place a costume on you uh, that says that you are in danger. So all of this foolishness that many people love to say that if you don't wear a hoodie or you don't wear your hat backwards or this foolish stuff, every child should have the right to run, jump, play, scream, laugh, kick a ball. And some get dirty in the ground, in the in the dirt. And guess what? And make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And a child's mistake should not mean their life. 
for black parents, we have to raise that question. And it is a fallacy and a tragedy that many times in communicating to our children, we end up pouring fear when we want them to be faithful. So we have to balance the practicality of who you are in your body with the fact that we don't want you to live in fear at the same time, but we do want you to come home alive tonight. I remember several years ago, um, I believe it might have been after um, the Ferguson murder of Michael Brown, uh, when Franklin Graham made that uh, atrocious Facebook mm. post mm. that said, listen up, you Blacks and Latinos, if you were just obedient to the law, these deaths mm. would not happen. Mm. I was a part of a, a number of both white and um, Christian leaders of color who spoke out in the name of Christ and said that that perspective was one, ignorant, but also very antithetical to that of our Christian faith. And so as you talk about racialized imagination, you know, what would you say to Franklin Graham in, in response to that type of a perspective? Franklin Graham is infected by Confederate COVID-1619. Uh, Franklin Graham doesn't practice Christianity, but capitalism that masquerades itself in ecclesiastical clothes. Uh, Franklin Graham it refuses uh, to bow down to the power of of the cross and recognize. Let, let me let me let me back up. If Franklin Graham saw Jesus on the cross as a lynching event, he would never utter those words. If Franklin Graham knew that Jesus was a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who was disinherited and also stopped and frisked by Roman authorities, didn't even have a public defender that was worth uh, his weight and salt. If he saw the scripture from that perspective, he would never utter such words that drip with such venom from his lips. You are not uttering anything dealing with Christ. You are only protecting your Confederate ideology that is screaming to, quote, make America great again. So, Reverend Dr. Moss, as we uh, sit with those words, one of the things um, I've had the opportunity to to co-author a book called Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. Uh, and part of our assertion is the starting point at dismantling white supremacy has got to be repentance, particularly repentance by white Christians and white evangelicals, you know, of which I consider myself a part. What would be your response to um, the question of how can Christians as in individuals and how do we dismantle the injustices of such a racialized system in society. Well, we, the, the challenge when you have a virus is when people allow the virus to run rampant in a community and run rampant in your system and refuse to get an inoculation or uh, when you don't want to wear a mask or anything of that nature, reopen the country. But I just throw a little shade there. I, let me stop. But um, uh, one of the things that uh, we, we, we have to do is dismantle the myth of whiteness. Uh, I like what Jim Wallace stated in a conversation when we were together. Uh, you were with us at the, at the Sojourners Retreat. Uh, he said in, in more of a private uh, piece, he was just kind of talking with about six or seven people in the hallway. And he said, 
In America, I get to be white. But when I get on a plane and go to England, all of a sudden I become an ethnicity. Uh, but I come back to America and I become white. And, and that's something that we don't realize. And I said to a group uh, in Columbus, Ohio, I said, you're only white right now because I'm in the room. Once I leave the room, you get to be German and Irish and you raise questions of ethnicity. Uh, whiteness, as James Baldwin says, is deeply tied to, to blackness. And for black people, our blackness is chained to the racial mythology of, of this, this hierarchy or uh, white supremacy. But at the same time, it is seeking consciousness and culture and ethnicity because I cannot name myself as being Igbo, Fulani, uh, Yoruba, a uh, particular ethnicity. It's caught between these two things. So there has to be a dismantling of this idea uh, that we then become ethnic uh, and recognize power dynamics. We have to repeat, repent from it uh, because whiteness can get in the way. No, not can. It does get in the way, gets in the way of our ability to be able to worship. Uh, you can't worship God if your ultimate concern is your privilege and your power. And that has to be removed uh, in order for us to engage. But the beautiful thing is the vaccine is love, compassion, justice, and repentance, and the power of grace. That the foundational pillars of our tradition give us an inoculation to deal with the virus. One of the most profound worship experiences I've ever had was right across the street from Kelly Ingram Park in Birmingham, Alabama, at 16th mm. Street mm. Uh, Baptist Church. When you look up at that stained glass window and yeah. the black Christ is there crucified, uh, and the glory of the colors of the piece and, you know, the suffering that that church has experienced from the death of those four beautiful little girls um, and how far we have to go uh, in terms of our repentance and the history of racial suffering in this country that still exists today. Um, and so in that regard, I think this is my last question. You know, from your perspective, what does justice look like for Ahmed Arbery? Hmm. Mm. I think justice on one level on with a little J uh, is bringing the individuals to uh, to justice where they uh, have to face the consequences of the crime that they committed. That's the little J. Uh, the little J is ensuring that there are DAs, uh, sheriffs uh, and people on the police department who represent uh, the entire community of Brunswick, as Brunswick has had a history of keeping people of color from those positions. That's the little J. But the capital J of justice is the creation of a new way of conceiving um, in America. I like to use the jazz analogy. The beauty of jazz music is that it brings to the table a variety of traditions, and none of them compete with each other. It's birthed in New Orleans, uh, in the Congo Square, 
It has uh, African pentatonic scale. It merges with indigenous rhythms, uh, with French and German and Spanish uh, chords and concepts and creates a new music. It borrows instruments that are not supposed to play together. Uh, saxophones are for marching bands and pianos are for European classical music. Drums are to be played with a particular rhythm, but not with polyrhythms. And the bass is to be played with a bow. But all of a sudden, jazz teaches us what democracy is to be like, where each musician is given the right to solo, meaning I can draw from my tradition, draw from my culture, draw from my history, and play something for everyone in the band. And what is powerful about the music is the no instrument demands that you must sound like me. The piano does not argue with the saxophone and say, you've got to sound like a piano, otherwise you're not worthy because there's a piano hierarchy. The drum does not say to, this, to the, the bass, you must sound just like me. Each one is given the right to be able to solo. And justice on a large J must take and create the kind of democracy. We are the yet to be United States of America. And jazz music, music birthed out of pain and possibility, gives us uh, a lens by which to look how democracy should develop. And in that kind of democracy, and I say it in, uh, in the message that I, in the film really is what it is, uh, on our Requiem for Ahmaud Arbery, uh, is that we want to be able to live in a space where uh, those who are black and white and Jew and Gentile for those who are Asian and atheist and immigrant and indigenous, if you're Muslim or you're Methodist, uh, whether you're Lutheran or Latino, uh, whether you're queer or Quaker, whether you're ghetto or country, it does not make a difference. But we recognize that all of us can operate under the rubric of a democracy where we can bring forth our unique cultural narrative and create a new song in the process. That's what justice in the large J looks like, creating a new song for America that is yet to be played. Mm. May it be so. May it be so. As you described that, I felt like, um, you know, we pray every day, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I feel like that's a glimpse of what the kingdom should be. Absolutely. And, and I believe it's possible. Uh, I, I really do. It's always far off. Uh, but we have to have Imagination. That's why I like what Walter Brueggemann said about prophetic imagination. The greatest victim of, of, of oppression and uh, destructive systematic oppression has been our imagination. Our children being able to see and envision a world that does not exist within the boxes the previous generation created. Yeah. Do you really, so I'll ask this, you know, on a personal level, when you said you believe it's possible, you know, I, I don't question the goodness of God and that one day the kingdom will be fully manifested. But while we're on this earth, it often feels like evil is winning. Hmm. 
And so I just, I, I, I'd like to hear more, you know, yeah. when you say it's a, a matter of imagination. It's, it's possible. And the reason I say it's possible is because I'm black. <laughs> I know this is funny, mm. but the fact <laughs> that we have existed mm. in a situation we should not exist. Yeah. It is possible because I hear the words of of my grandmother and, and my mother and and my father. It's possible because my parents told me that Fannie Lou Hamer stayed at, at with them. Uh, you know, she had to spend the night in the home. Uh, they were friends with her. Yeah. And for a woman who only had a, you know, fifth grade education, who was physically and sexually assaulted, but still said that I could still see a vision of what this country could be. And that a woman with a fifth grade education sharecropper could literally stand next to a president and shut him up? Come on. The fact that, I mean, would Harriet Tubman raise that question? I did this thing talking to our young people one time. I said, don't tell me you think it's hard. It was hard for Harriet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's get some perspective, yeah, right? I mean, now, now, if she could see a better day, and she, mm. she had no internet, she didn't have a car, couldn't hop on a train. She said, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, put a gun on my side, and I'm going to do all I can to bring as many mm. people to freedom. Come on. Those are the people because they had a spirit connected to something deeper. And yeah. there's something that's destructive when you have so much technology and access to human made things you miss out on the spirit organically things that are already within us that we end up dismissing because we're looking for a switch for liberation instead of work toward liberation. Throughout the Psalms, the people of God lamented, and they often asked the question, how long, O Lord? Psalm 84 says, how long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? How should we as followers of Jesus respond to the realities of such racial injustice? I've seen a lot of questions on social media asking, particularly the white community, where are you? Why aren't you speaking out against the unjust murders of so many? May that be a place for us to begin. Speak up. Let your voices be heard. Speak up on social media, in your communities, in your families, and let others know such treatment of the Black community and communities of color is not okay. When I see the question about where are the white people, where are the voices of white women, may we no longer be silent. May we no longer be complacent. When our brothers and sisters who are Black are living in fear, out of love, may we see ourselves as one body And may we also live in fear. When our neighbors who are people of color are afraid for the very safety of their children, may we respond as if it's our own children who are walking out that door. In 1964, Ella Baker said, until the killing of black men, black mothers' sons, becomes as important to the rest of the country as the killing of white mothers' sons, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. So use your voice. We also should start with a posture of repentance and lament. I'd encourage you to pick up the book, Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Church, that talks about the ways we need to repent for systemic racism that often has been institutionalized even in the context of the church. If you're uninformed about the issues we've been talking about today, read my new book, 
beyond hashtag activism. Read books by Christian leaders of color. Pick up Daniel Hill's White Awake that talks about how we can dismantle white supremacy and stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters of color. Visit the website Run With Maud that talks about ways you can engage and advocate for justice for Ahmad Arbery. Many took up the challenge and ran 2.23 miles on his birthday to show solidarity and to call for justice. Join the Justice for Floyd movement and sign the petition calling for the police officers in question to be held to account. May these actions just be a beginning. Calling for justice after so many deaths is not enough. Join activists in your local community who are engaged in police reform and in direct social action to combat racism. There's so many incredible groups committed to dismantling racism and to creating a different future for our communities. Take a look at the Equal Justice Initiative, the Christian Community Development Association, Freedom Road, Sojourners, Evangelicals for Social Action, or other local organizations and churches that are engaged in your own backyard. Stand in solidarity with the leaders of color who are saying enough is enough. The racial inequities in our country must be brought to an end. May we be encouraged by the words of the prophet Amos. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord your God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy and let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Much of the content from our conversations during episodes of Hashtag Activism come from my upcoming book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age, out with InterVarsity Press on May 26th. You can pre-order your copy today at a local bookstore like heartsandmindsbooks.com or wherever books are found.